Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, it's uh, good to be here uh, talking about a topic I find pretty interesting, and I imagine most of you could see the benefit in dealing with it, because uh, I view it as a very foundational one to, to deal with. But uh, you'll look on your sheet there. I'll just get us started with that. Um, the two main sources, whenever we're dealing with any theological reflection, um, are scripture and tradition. So it's probably the most fundamental question uh, in Christian history um, when we're regarding proper interpretation and the ordering of what we would call authoritative sources. So the most baseline when we're deriving information, thoughts, where are we pulling from? We're used to authority structures in our lives normally. This is the way, the way in which the church has arrived at those. So, uh, but yeah, so any theological reflection we have, they're dependent on the various sources that will guide and shape what we believe, the way the church has uh, had its faith guided and shaped from the earliest days has been through those two main sources of scripture and tradition. Um, however, when dealing with the period we're discussing today, the from AD 100 to 500, I think they are um, the most intertwined during that period because in many ways, uh, tradition is being developed as well as the New Testament canon. So following the, uh, the time of Christ and the time of the apostles, uh, we have um, many philosophical and theological assumptions in the Greco-Roman culture that are competing with Christianity during this early time, um, which in many ways demand uh, attention from Christian thought. And uh, it's during this time where the early church is trying to um, deal with the implications of having a new identity in Christ during this time. This prevailing religious and spiritual ideology of the Greco-Roman world set over against that of the newly found Christian identity. Um, and so in many ways during this period, uh, pastors uh, were heavily engaged in uh, the presentation, uh, the preservation, the interpretation of what they would consider to be the inspired books of Scripture. Um, so in a lot of ways, they're providing um, regular instruction to the church. Uh, they're evangelizing. They're catechizing, so teaching new converts about the faith. Um, and so during this time of maybe uncertainty on what all would constitute uh, inspired scripture, they engaged in a, a hard and a vigorous work of trying to discern what those are. Um, but so how do we recognize scripture? So firstly, when like the early church fathers speak of scripture, they generally have in mind a certain set, a contour of what they would describe as the canon that we recognize today. Though there is a number, a significant debate around the process of transmission and the extent of the canon. So um, what we'll see is that the canon was closely tied to the common worship of the church. 
um, when they are gathered. Uh, they're making co- uh, decisions about what books they can uh, determine to be inspired by God. And what they ultimately have to do is determine a method to uh, excuse me determine a method in uh, in the ways in which they can determine that in some way uh that sounds i didn't say that quite eloquently enough but uh the point is through the process of trying to understand what they believe to be the canon of scripture they didn't just arbitrarily choose what books they th- believe are inspired they used uh, a couple of uh, dividing lines, a couple of criteria. So in dealing with this basic and theological question, what books are inspired, um, they didn't really decide what they were. Um, so I like to include that there's a meaningful distinction. They did not decide what was or was not Scripture. Instead, they recognized which books were inspired. So they didn't envision um, that they were just imposing the status of Scripture on certain texts, but rather they tried to recognize which texts God had already inspired through the Spirit for the life and ministry of the church. And to help organize which books were recognized as Scripture, um, they began distinguishing um, between uh, uh, books into three categories mainly. So they would have a classification of books that were accepted as Scripture, uh, those that were questioned because they don't meet all the criteria they come up with, and then books that were ultimately rejected. Um, And I want to move pretty quickly into that criteria uh, here. So uh, rather than get into some of the books that were disputed or removed, let's see the criteria used to either accept, uh, tentatively uh, accept, or reject. So to help recognize these books uh, that were inspired, they pointed to several criteria, which included a text apostolicity. That's a mouthful to say that. uh, Catholicity and orthodoxy. And so... Going right through what these mean, apostolicity, the early church believed that only texts composed by an apostle or someone close to an apostle should be considered scripture. And I will note that mainly we're dealing with, uh, in this discussion, is New Testament books. So the uh, early church fathers, they accepted pretty much wholesale the Old Testament is inspired scripture. And so much more of the debate about what should and should not be included in the canon after Christ is uh, the New Testament canon. So um, keep that in mind. Uh, Catholicity, anytime we hear the phrase Catholic, we're meaning universal. And in this context, that is books that were uh, affirmed and used widely by the church in worship. So they're having edification by these books and a large number of the churches, the majority witness of the church is that they were inspired. Um, so this is not necessarily an individual in an ivory tower saying, you know, this is an inspired word of God. This is a, a group witness, corporate witness uh, in regard to that. And thirdly, the, the third criteria they would use is, um, is this, 
supposed scripture theologically consonant with prior texts. So this is where you'll, if you ever watch the so-called History Channel every year when they were running a bunch of stuff about, here's all the secret books that people removed, you know, in their evil, divisive ways to hide people, hide things from the church and hide things from people. Those books were all rejected because of their theological dissonance. So um, many of the, the folks that we will discuss over the course of this uh, semester are people who are engaging with the thoughts that were created uh, by the groups who created those counterfeits, and they were rejected for those reasons. Um, so, uh, but yeah, mainly the, the theological one, which I think is uh, most interesting to me normally, is even if a book uh, claimed to be written by an apostle and was used widely in the church, it would still be rejected if the teaching uh, was not consonant with the previous books recognized as scripture. So theological coherence throughout. Um, so what we'll do is, uh, yeah, let's keep, let's keep moving on. I'll make sure that I'm doing well on time. Um, so this is the beginnings of trying to say, when we were, uh, refer to the term scripture, what do we mean in total? Um, Old Testament and what of uh, things that were written during uh, the times of the apostles and such would be considered scripture as well. But in addition to that, uh, those discussions, we have the development of tradition. So every, a lot of times when I hear the word tradition, especially in my studies in college where we're dealing with like worship war things and like music and all this stuff and traditional aesthetic, that word makes me think things that are not uh, being contemplated when the early church fathers are using the word tradition. Um, you may be similar to me. It may be a positive term for you. It may be a negative term or just neutral. But uh, in the early church, uh, when they use the language of tradition, uh, they're referring to doctrine that is given to the church by Jesus or the apostles or sometimes just a summation of biblical doctrine. So when they mean tradition, they mean biblical doctrine that's derived from the scriptures. So... This is how the the um, the fact they're less disambiguated um, during this period of time when dealing with scripture versus tradition is that they are so intermingled that they are inseparable. Um, there will be times where tradition will depart from the scriptures in some ways, but it is far harder to do that in these early periods where they're first developing what they would describe as tradition. Um, while uh, recognizing the canon of Scripture. Um, yeah, so simply, the New Testament uses the same language of tradition um, to emphasize basically the transmission of the teaching of the apostles. And like 1 Corinthians 11, Thessalonians 2, when they describe the tradition passed down, they're describing summations of biblical doctrine consistent with what Jesus taught and what the apostles are teaching. Um, and... Let's, uh, yeah, let's keep moving. So, uh, initially, uh, in the second century, we have um, the early church fathers using this language of the 
rule of canon. So this is your next little fill in there. Uh, the rule of canon or of faith. I'll let you put both in there. Uh, most of the time uh, from now on, I'll use the phrase rule of faith because that's how they described it most, but they use them interchangeably, um, which they use that to describe basically a summary of the church's teaching and how it was used as a standard of orthodoxy. So the term rule, same term as, uh, term as canon of scripture, simply means standard or measuring line. So if they say something does not maintain the rule of faith, then it is compromised doctrinally um, in some way. So um, uh, part of the uh, work that uh, you'll have to undergo if you read more of these is that there's no real single definition of the rule of faith that's normally accepted across all. However, they all have resemblances and similarities that include something that's interesting, which is, um, this is, I always think about the word triad as being a musical thing, but it is simply an application of the same term. But they describe it as a triadic structure, which is organized around the persons of the Father, Son, and Spirit, right? So that when they start to theologically conceive um, biblical doctrine, the tradition of the apostles, they use these as guideposts, uh, pulling from Matthew um, to do so. But um, these rules of faith, they always have a common theological descriptors that they've derived from Scripture uh, to explain the nature of God and use this as the dividing line. So um, this is not uh, used to cover every theological issue that they dealt with. However, it provided a clear framework for them to express um, the church's faith and uh, help unify the church against a heretical division that would come shortly. Um, So uh, there is a a meaningful distinction that sometimes is uh, under attack with these issues um, from opposing groups, but there is the distinction between, there's a slight distinction between tradition and the rule of faith. So the, and that's the script, the idea of the notion of doctrinal development. So if we think of development, um, you could say, oh, well, it started in a simple form and then it was elaborated upon. That's not really what's being discussed. What's being discussed with doctrinal development is the uh, tradition of the church is going into new contexts and facing new challenges. And so the church, in light of that, goes to the scriptures, uh, reviews the material there, um, addresses any of the issues uh, faced, um, and this is how the development comes around. So when you start getting into the the ecumenical councils that we will review at some point, these are the, uh, those kinds of instances where... A, a new um, opposition to the knowledge of Christ has come about. Maybe a question they haven't contemplated, but doesn't sit well with the scriptures comes. Minds come, they, they discuss, they debate, they look at the scriptures, and then they come forth with a, a newer uh, nuance that will account um, for uh, potential uh, issues uh, that have arisen. So this is... Um, 
the slight difference is uh, rule of faith is the statement to me. Uh, the development period is basically it into a new context where uh, it needs further clarification. Um, so, yeah. So you can see you might be getting confused as I normally am when I'm trying to think about through this, but um, especially in this early period, um, scripture and tradition, they're so intermingled uh, during this period. Is um, I think maybe the best phrase to describe it is just that they're um, supporting each other. So we're determining a canon um, that's uh, consistent with uh, the apostles' teaching and consistent with the rest of revealed scripture. Um, And from there, we are trying to determine, reading them as one story of salvation, determining what Christian doctrine is or what the tradition is. And when we determine the tradition, they become stated in explicitly scriptural terms as summations of our doctrine. Um, so let's try to look into like some of the studies here. So these are just examples, uh, exemplifying some of these uh, principles and how the early church was dealing with arriving at a scriptural canon. So the first one we're going to look at is the uh, Muratorian fragment. So it's one of the earliest, most important lists um, discovered in Milan uh, in 1700, I mean, in 1700, but dates about uh, 180 um, AD. And uh, it's, it's a pretty short thing. Uh, it's only about like, 85 lines. However, it mentions 22 of the 27 books that are currently in the New Testament. Uh, the, the only ones that are out at that point for this list are Hebrews, James, and First and Second Peter. Um, but what's most interesting about this is that this is evidence um, that there was a set of core principles, uh, a set of core canonical books um, that were being used and recognized as Scripture, and a couple principles that we mentioned before um, used to determine their canonicity. So what we have is um, the, the three pillars, I guess, the three criteria, apostolicity, catholicity, and orthodoxy of texts, all three of these are appealed to at different points in the fragment. Um, so, for example, in, when he's discussing, discussing Luke's gospel, um, he, the author is defending um, Luke's apostolicity because of his connection to Paul. So Luke was not himself an apostle but he was closely related to Paul, went with him on his missionary journeys, so on and so forth. And thus, by that criteria, it is an authoritative account of Jesus' teaching uh, in its order. They like to use that phrase quite a bit. Um, but he also mentions that uh, in the narrative of Acts, you know, Luke compiled these events um, after he witnessed them in his presence. So Acts is many things he's witnessed, um, the teachings of Jesus are uh, basically one degree moved away from a, an apostle. Right? Um, there is also uh, let me keep, let me keep moving through here. I wrote way more probably than I need to, to get through this, but let me make sure I'm hitting everything. Um, 
yeah, let's, so point two, it also points to um, the, the orthodoxy. So um, uh, let's see here. Things trying to load on me. Yeah, so in the discussion of orthodoxy, uh, let's, um, over the four gospel accounts, this particular fragment, um, uh, didn't view any um, variations between the gospel accounts as being problematic because of the unified witness um, to the gospel message. Uh, it says... Uh, the the author argues, though, that various elements may be taught in the individual books of the Gospels. Nevertheless, this makes no difference to the faith of believers, since by the one sovereign spirit, all things have been declared in all the Gospels. Um, so this is emphasizing the unity of the faith of the Gospels um, that's transcending the text um, indicates the inspiration of all four Gospels by the one sovereign spirit. That's the phrase he's keying in on there. So though they may differ on various elements, even from perspectives, they are unified in their basic confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and the organization of their commentary on the major sections of his life, uh, death and resurrection and second coming. Um, these are all uh, evidences, support for their canonicity on the grounds of orthodoxy. Um, and additionally, uh, the fragment appeals to the Catholicity in, on some issues. So uh, he describes how Paul wrote um, a letter to Philemon and Titus and uh, two letters to Titus that are, quote, all held sacred in the esteem of the church Catholic of the regulation of ecclesiastical discipline. So the, the usages of Philemon and Titus and First uh, and Second Timothy um, in the author's mind uh, because of their value to the church and edification towards faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they would uh, satisfactorily meet uh, Catholicity in his mind. So um, essentially, the big takeaway for me on this is that uh, the Muratorian fag- fragment uh, demonstrates that even at an early date, this this very early date, 180 or so, or prior to that, since this would come after that, Assembling the canon uh, was not spontaneous or haphazard um, by the early Christian, uh, Christian community, and it was a, a, an intentional work uh, for them to recognize what books were inspired and useful to the life and ministry of the church. And so uh, really what we're seeing here with these principles is a theological framework for the work of uh, canonizing uh, Scripture. Um, uh, another instance to deal with is uh, Athanasius's letter 39. Um, a, lot, a lot of uses coming up with this. Um, but he was the, uh, the bishop of Alexandria um, during a, a tumultuous time uh, in the 4th century. Um, though uh, they had a, uh, a newfound bit of freedom, uh, thanks to Constantine, there were uh, significant internal disputes uh, between uh, Nicene Christians and Arians, which uh, we'll look, cover at a later date, uh, more officially, I imagine. Um, but Athanasius was uh, 
an ardent defender of Nicene Orthodoxy. Um, and by the, the late 4th century, we had many canon lists that were circulating, um, and the canonical books um, had already been used in the churches for some time. Um, but in Athanasius's letter 39, um, we have the first like extant list of all 66 books that comprise what we recognize as the Old and New Testaments. Um, uh, based on some of his comments, it's likely that he inherited this list um, from some of his teachers, but uh, he does note in dealing with discussions that were, there were many, many, many conversations over the extent, the breadth, um, and the number of canonical texts. And um, what we have a little bit from him is um, a discussion uh, around, some of the most helpful information to me is books that are, some would consider inspired, but not enough to the level that they require require being in the official canon, um, which... That could sound odd at first, um, but the issue would be, uh, does this book have spiritual edification value? If the answer is yes, the next question is, does it have enough to be considered part of the canon of Scripture? And that's where I think most of the debate goes about, is you'll have some books that even Athanasius, uh, like for example, rejects the apocryphal texts, but he still admits or says to him uh, in his own opinion that they are helpful and edifying, um, but not required to be a part of uh, the scriptures. And so that would be an immediate difference between like us, say, and the normal uh, Catholic canon. If you ever pick up a Catholic Bible, they have the Apocrypha in it. It's a number of books. Um, many of which are related to kind of what we would describe as the intertestamental period. So um, there's a couple of those that seem to be pretty pro-Israel, um, but don't have, they don't meet the same criteria of the other 66 in our estimation. Um, but yeah, so uh, I've included these two quotes in there from him, but uh the reason he composed his list, he describes, is um, to uh, set forth in order the books that are canonized, transmitted, and believed to be divine so that those who have been deceived might condemn the persons who led them astray and those who have remained pure might rejoice to be reminded of these things. Um, that, I believe, is a direct reference to some he was aware of who... Uh, followed after some of these other texts that were not part of uh, his canon and a couple of the other canons that he revered because they were led astray by them. So that was a big issue for him is that some people were led astray by some of these other uh, supposedly scriptural-inspired books away from the knowledge of Christ. So definitely he would not be kindly to welcome those, those texts back in and wanted a clear uh, uh, dividing line between them so he could uh, point them out. He goes on to say of the ones he included that they are the springs of salvation so that someone who thirsts may be satisfied by the words they contain. And in these books alone, the teaching of piety is proclaimed. 
So you can really hear his intention there is the books that in his mind meet the criteria and are um, encouraging people towards godliness in the way of Christ. So that's a big deal for him. Um, let's look at uh, Irenaeus um, with the rule of faith. Okay, So alongside of the canonical development of the scriptural canon, um, early Christian thinkers are also fashioning uh, doctrines that form the church's tradition, like we said, tradition, and expressed its uh, basic theological convictions. So early on, the language of tradition was often called the church's rule of faith, like I mentioned before. So um, Irenaeus, uh, he was the Bishop of Lyons, just a little backstory for him, and is widely known as champion of Christian orthodoxy against the Gnostics in the second century. Um, And he used this rule of faith to differentiate uh, between classic Christian convictions and the Gnostic worldview. So immediately see the development of tradition uh, being a helpful aid in guarding the church against heretical division and error. Um, But uh, he provides several summaries of the rule of faith throughout his writings. Um, And though they're not all identical to one another, uh, again, the general structure is triadic and follows the basic points of the baptismal confession of Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, so for him, the rule of faith was the epitome of Scripture, and he described it, he called it uh, Scripture's hypothesis. So like that summarizing, he's summarizing the overarching argument or plot of Scripture And that summation then would be the rule of faith. But what's interesting to note, I suppose, for us as Baptists, is that the rule of faith is very closely associated with baptism, like we said, uh, with the trifold confessions. Um, But uh, it forms the the content of discipleship uh, instruction before baptism and was the basis for Christian confession during baptism. Um, so, in a, a short, I don't like saying the word catechetical, but they had it a lot in the text. And a short manual about learning you good about Christianity, um, his book on a, apostolic preaching, um, Irenaeus provides a summary of the rule of faith that states. So, I'm going to read through it all. So, you have what I've titled the Articles of Faith here. I just listed them for you. Here's the 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 full version of that. So he says, this is the order of the rule of faith and the foundation of the edifice and support of our conduct. God, the Father, uncreated, uncontainable, invisible, one God, the creator of all. This is the first article of our faith. The second article, the word of God, the Son of God, Christ Jesus our Lord, who was revealed by the prophets according to the character of their prophecy and according to the nature of the economies of the Father, by whom all things were made, and who, in the last times, to recapitulate all things, became man amongst men, visible and palpable, in order to abolish death, to demonstrate life, and to effect communion between God and man. That is a long sentence. Um, And the third article, the Holy Spirit, through whom the prophets prophesied, and the patriarchs learnt the things of God, and the righteous were led in the path of righteousness, and who in the last times was poured out 
in a new fashion upon the human race, renewing man throughout the world to God. So that is a full summation of his mind of the rule of faith based off this triadic structure of our confession of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And what he assumes is that the revelation given in Scripture is inspired and is therefore entirely consistent. So it's inspiration, consistency, uh, leading to these coherent summarizations. So the Scriptures teach that there's only one God who is revealed um, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As the rule unfolds, uh, each person is characterized with scriptural language. So here's, again, this kind of unity. Scriptural language depicting their economic activity within the narrative structure of salvation history. So Irenaeus assumes that when the scriptures are read as a whole, this is the next little bit of bubbles here, or lines, they align with these three points of doctrine, and this theological standard becomes the basic confession and tradition of the church derived from Scripture. Um, let's see here. Let's keep moving. I'm doing well on time. What's this? Can I bring water up here? It's a little dry. Uh, what you'll see in uh, coming weeks as well is that, uh, like Irenaeus, others such as Tertullian, Origen, Augustine, they all articulate versions of the rule of faith. Um, and so in many ways, uh, what you'll see is kind of the commonality, how broad the commonality is um, of the rule of faith. Uh, so eventually, these summaries of the rule of faith will be given fuller expressions of tradition in the creedal statements uh, that arise out of things like uh, the Nicene Creed, uh, the definition of Chalcedon, and so forth, where we'll have um, more uh, breadth and clarity on a a broader, um, I'll say fuller, fuller statement of Christian tradition through these creeds, and in many ways, uh, to this day, we can uh, still see the continuance of that. They become more formalized statements, uh, like the terminology of blossoming. That's kind of some would just say it's uh, more verbose, but to each his own, I suppose. Um, especially uh, if you're going to have to go through it in the way Hippolytus. <laughs> Uh, described. So if, let's look at uh, number four, okay? So we have um, this last little bit on tradition. Um, it's probably worth examining. Um, the, the church uh, tradition was passed on through the process of discipleship or uh, was known as catechesis. Uh, we're much more familiar with the word catechism, uh, which is the, the process of that. Um, but that's what we're dealing with, is being taught, being brought up. Um, but Hippolytus, uh, he was the bishop of Rome in the 3rd century, and uh, he composed a manual uh, titled On the Apostolic Tradition. And in this text, it's uh, one of the earlier, most important witnesses 
to what the life and practices of the early church looked like. Um, they discussed how the church ought to appoint leaders, administer um, the, I think he described it as the process of Christian initiation, uh, how to do baptisms and how to administer the Eucharist or communion or Lord's Supper. Um, as well as uh, there were prescriptions, I mean procedures of the church's worship and devotional life. So, um, but the section on catechesis and baptism, they walk uh, thoroughly through the process of Christian initiation um, that takes a person from the first time they've encountered the church to their baptism and uh, seemed pretty rigorous uh, in that um, it was common for them to examine a person up to three years uh, before they were ready for baptism. Um, and they would have extended uh, periods of fasting and prayer leading up to such an event. Um, but back to this triadic conception of the church tradition, uh, in Hippolytus's manual, the act of baptism involved a triple immersion with questions and confessional statements preceding each one. Um, so you would have these questions and answers that would demonstrate the personal commitment of the one receiving baptism and his or her dedication to the basic confessions of the church. So adherence to the tradition of the apostles passed down. That's the, the key point here. So as the text describes... Um, the way they would uh, go through with a baptism is uh, they would enter the water and then uh, they would ask the person being baptized, do you believe in God the Father Almighty? And they would reply, I believe. And then on his or her confession, they would baptize them the first time. The second question would be, do you believe in Jesus in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Spirit and, the, and Mary the Virgin and was crucified under Pontius Pilate and was dead and buried and rose on the third day alive from the dead? ascended to the heavens and sits at the right hand of the Father and will come to judge the living and the dead. That's question two. The Christ ones, the Son ones are always longer with a lot more clarity. They're really getting all of the particulars of Christ's life, death, and uh, burial, resurrection in those. They profess, I believe. They're baptized a second time. And finally, the third question, do you believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Church and the resurrection of the flesh? And then I believe, and they'd be baptized a third time. And after having been baptized, then they are welcomed into uh, the community of God, and they would take the Eucharist for the first time. Um, so it definitely could be a uh, pretty moving uh, instance of baptism, but uh might be all the sweeter if you had to wait three years and go through rigors to get to that moment. Um, but the importance of that to me is that uh, this kind of accounting of baptism being tied so closely to confessions of church tradition, um, church tradition derived from the scriptures, is uh, that it kind of welds together the uh, this confession of faith um, with interest into the church. So um, we have uh, not just conversion experiences, but confessions. Um, this was not really a time uh, in that time for us just to describe or discuss an experience or a conversation we had, maybe where we came to faith um, in the past. 
but it was really to publicly confess that we hold to the same confession of the church. Um, so before a new convert will receive baptism, they're instructed in the teachings of Scripture, and then at the baptism, they made a public profession of each point of the rule of faith at baptism. So the threefold confession, immersion, was showing this close, very close association between Scripture and tradition um, in these liturgical patterns of the early church. And so um, what we can see from this material is that from the earliest days of the church, uh, both Scripture and tradition derived from it were the two sources that informed Christian faith and practice. Um, uh, although probably the rest of uh, tradition would continue uh, uh, to debate the relationship of these sources, um, they were very, very closely intertwined in the early church. So scripture is established. Uh, tradition is derived from clear uh, summarization and doctrinal uh, clarity um, from the scriptures. And that was used to inform the, the actions, the practices of the early church. Um, but it seems pretty clear, though, that especially early on, the early church fathers held, held Scripture as the primary place of authority. Um, and uh, they don't view their tradition as being separate or even entirely separate and distinct from uh, from Scripture. So it's to me, it seems clear that Scripture is primary. Tradition is derived exclusively from Scripture with scriptural language and is, is fettered to Scripture. And so in order of importance, Scripture, then tradition. Um, but the, the brief summary that you'll have reviewed if you check the stuff from uh, uh, in preparation for this week is that three takeaways... The early church assumed the inspiration of Scripture to arrive at tradition. Um, and the proper ordering of Scripture uh, and tradition is that Scripture is inspired and uh, tradition is uh, contingent on Scripture, is derived from. Uh, and that the church should not, however, neglect tradition despite Scripture's uh, primacy. So although all Christian faith and practice is rooted in the Scriptures, the church much, uh, must recognize the abiding value of history of creeds and confessions because they are the work, the hard work, of clear, uh, concise, doctrinal summaries derived from heavy study and prayer of the Scriptures. Um, and they are simply confessions of what we derive from Scripture. So, certainly this is the discussion um, through early church history uh, that will continue. And in some ways, uh, to this day, we still deal with doctrinal development as we encounter new issues and problems or uh, new things that have not yet been contemplated by Christian thought. Um, however, uh, any time... We arrive at these uh, these vexing issues. Our modus operandi should be that of the early church fathers, in my mind. Go to the scriptures, 
see ways in which Christian minds have dealt with similar issues and arrived at confessional statements regarding these issues and move from there to not do away with the work of the past, but help build upon it and be strengthened by it. So, and Because at the end of the day, the scriptures are given for the life and ministry of the church, and uh, the faithful will dedicate themselves uh, to the study of the church, and the faithful will de- dedicate themselves to the study of those inspired texts with the context of apostolic tradition. Um, so there's a lot there, for sure. But um, do we have any questions or thoughts? Or, yes. I'm sure there's a good bit of I, I thought how you um, talked about on the uh, apostolic tradition um, was like with baptism was very helpful just really to show us like for us as Baptists, we believe that you are to be baptized after you repent or confess, yeah. right? And you see that done here really early in the church history. Yeah. Um, because I think many people outside of the Baptist confession or faith would say, well, they always only baptized infants. But that's not true. And we see that um, in instances like this. And I thought you pulled that out really well. Yeah, It's a, it's a neat process for sure. And something to be considered. We do something similar now anyway. Um, we just don't baptize people three times for it. Um, and most of the time we'll deal with, you know, do you believe in gospel message with some clarity? Um, we'll always have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in whose name you're baptized in after a public profession. But, um, yeah, I always find it refreshing to think back on that uh, the symbol of doing it three times but the argument for not having to do that three times <laughs> like I appreciate them baptizing or doing the confessions but I would be like did you need to immerse them three times because if you want to stay true to the symbol of being buried with Christ and resurrected with him he didn't do it three times <laughs> yeah we'll just stay down for three days yeah there you go. <laughs> Yeah. That, that would be good. <laughs> <laughs> Three minutes would be rough enough. Yeah. All right. So I considered being esoteric, and I ran this by Ashlyn, and she was like, I don't think you should do this, but uh, this is not how I'm going to determine who's going to get this, but this is how I wanted to determine it. Okay. So last night... LeBron James surpassed Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in most points in NBA history. And my question was going to be, um, he surpassed Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. What was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's name before he converted to Islam and became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? Yeah. <laughs> This is what I figured I would get. Yeah. 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 Do you? What is it? Luel Cinder. Okay. There we go. <laughs> yes. Somebody did know. Yeah. Well done, Tom. Yeah. Well done. I knew two small. <laughs> yeah. Two small facts about him when he was young was that, one, I did 
That was his name. And I thought I was like, well, that's a kind of corny name. Because to me, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar sounds cooler. But I don't know if it's because it does sound cooler or that because he was a great basketball player. So it is cooler. But I also found it interesting that he was already 5'10 as a fourth grader. That's a big kid, man. We got some big kids on our team, but man. Being like almost six feet as like a seven-year-old, maybe seven, eight-year-old. Well, you'd be nine and ten, right? So in fourth grade. But man. So any more questions or thoughts or just things you thought were interesting or helpful? I have another question. Sure. No one else does. Um, I really like the criteria, the three uh, criteria that you pulled out for us just to determine scripture um, or the early church to determine scripture. Uh, but I could see potentially someone bringing up the point and saying that, well, we're relying on tradition in order to determine what scripture is. Um, with these three things. And so how would you speak to that? In in what way do you mean tradition? Like apostolic? Apostolic, choice? yeah. yeah. Uh, the universal um, um, yeah. recognizing the Catholic. Yeah, I think the recognition one to me is the most troubling. But, um, yeah, that's, that's the odd bit for me. So then I would immediately have to appeal to the strongest one would be the theological consonants. I like the, the phrase he uses as consonant because to me as a musician, there are different types of tensions in music and there are um, harmonies that are described as consonant versus dissonant. And consonant sounds are ones that don't fight with each other too much. So music is just vibrations and there are vibrations against each other that create these sounds. And so in many ways, we could definitely take this. Um, we see the New Testament unlocking of the Old Testament as being something that is harmonious with, but not an exact continuation of in some ways, where even Christ will be like, you have heard it said, but I say to you now, where he's teaching the same thing. Um, but a fuller expression of it, where they are consonant with one each other, with one another. Um, yeah, and I am sympathetic towards the. Well, how do you determine uh, something that seems pretty unscientific almost to be like? Well, they kind of generally view it as being edifying or whatever. Um, my only recourse at the time would be like, well. How strong is it theologically in the context of the entire salvation narrative uh, from top to top to bottom? Because um, there were instances of of things that were viewed as inspired at the time that were in wide circulation, but failed on one or the other two, and are no longer included in the canon. Um, and, yeah, I don't have a great answer for it, really. Um, I, I just think it's important for us to recognize and remember, like, um, tradition 
didn't determine, and I think you pulled this out really well in recognizing scripture in the fill in the blank part in the top of the notion, the very beginning. Tradition doesn't decide what yeah. is scripture. It's simply helping us recognize what is already scripture, yeah. what already is inspired by God. So the authority really is found in scripture alone, not authority or tradition. Um, yeah. But tradition was helpful and is helpful uh, because God works through it uh, in, to help us determine some of these things. Yeah. Which why well, I think is important to always keep in mind, and I think it's clear from the sources that their uh, understanding is that once they have determined as best they can what is Scripture, all tradition is built upon it. So it doesn't come equally alongside. It's like I keep thinking of like the word like tendrils, like these things coming together and intertwining. They can't be separated. Um, they're uh, they are rooted together for sure. Um, Anything else we got? I'll pray for us if not. Okay. I guess I shouldn't phrase it like that because if anybody wants to go and then someone else doesn't, then they're like, oh, I'm just keeping them here by my own choice. All right, but let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, a time to come together and uh, just uh, look through a window into the past of, of your work in your church. Um, how you, uh, in your sovereignty, have preserved your word, how you have uh, continued to build uh, your church into a common confession, into the one uh, Lord Jesus, uh, all by the work of uh, your your sovereign spirit. I pray that uh, as we continue this study, um, that uh, we would grow stronger in you, that we would trust your word all the more, um, that we would trust uh, your ways all the more, and that you would continue to uh, bind us with that same spirit um, to be your body, both here uh, and abroad, and that uh, the gospel will continue to change us and change uh, the world around us, all for the sake of your name, the glory uh, of your Son. Uh, I pray this in his name. Amen.